3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and you're listening here on Zero Community Radio 855am with Grace on the breakfast show. How are we all this morning? It is a bright and early 7am in the morning today here in Melbourne. And I think the weather is seemingly cloudy, actually not too bright, but it will get sunny later in the day. And it's also not too cold, which is a good thing as well for me specifically. (laughs) I hope the weather is doing well for all of you out there. And yeah, I'm in terms of my weekends just last week. I think it's been quite chill and I didn't really do much. I just went and hang out with my friends. I went to the South Melbourne market for the first time, actually. It was a very big, very, I didn't, very, very big food hall. They had a very big food hall area and I really enjoyed that. It's crazy because I've already been here for almost two years now and I've, this was only my first time going there. All my friends were like, oh my god, you have not gone there. That's so weird. So yeah, really great experience. I enjoyed the food so much. I had pa- I had a paella and a coffee and oysters. Good stuff, good stuff. But it's kind of crazy how I'm having a combination of oysters and coffee. Like, that's not a good thing. Uh, my stomach didn't end up well <laughs> later in the day. But I managed, I managed, but it was a great experience. I had great food, so that's, I think that's more important. And yes, if I'm not mistaken, the Lunar New Year has already ended for since it's two weeks. So yeah, time flies. I can't believe time passes by so quickly. Like it's already 26th of February. We have just about three more days till February ends. I feel like the new year has just begun. Like, I'm always coming here and I'm like, the new year just started, but it's the second month and we're now going to the third really soon. So it's crazy on that part. Anyways, enough of me blabbering. Let's get to the headlines for this morning. The government is providing more than $21 million for a council cleanup and assistance to support communities impacted by Victorian storms and floods for immediate and long-term recovery since the disasters that commenced on 24th of December 2023 through to mid-January 2024. The assistance is provided by a jointly funded disaster recovery funding arrangement and the package actually includes a 13.1 million cleanup program to develop deliver all hazard assessments, which includes make safe and demolition works for impacted and uninsured residents, as well as support for the removal of flood debris, which is going to be coordinated by Emergency Recovery Victoria, 
and it also includes a $8 million council support fund to support the councils to clean up and restore community assets, facility and services, as well as repairs to infrastructures like the walking trails, playgrounds and sporting fields. Now, all this support will be available in 29 local government areas. So that includes the Alpine Shire, Bobo Shire, Ballard City and so on. Emergency Recovery Victoria is continuing to work with the impacting councils to, to understand the assistance required to support the communities following the storm and floods. If you want more information on the recovery support, visit Emergency Victoria Recovery Victoria at vic.gov.au and look for 2023-24 Victorian Storms and Flood website uh, page on the website. Or you can just call emergency recovery hotline on 1-800-560-760. The United Nations Palestinian Aid Agency is facing, quote, a, at a breaking point following a $450 million budget shortfall after 18 donors have con- decided to freeze funds over alleged Hamas links. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East is facing from a shortfall budget from originally $880 million as it confronts its biggest humanitarian crisis seen in this organization's 75-year history. And yes, this it, it now basically reports that the funds have been froze to pause eight delivered eight aid deliveries to northern Gaza where and where it is currently not quote possible to conduct proper humanitarian operations and amid this increasing reports of famine among people in the area. The United the UNRWA runs schools, healthcare, social services and water sanitization and they actually also provide Food assistance for Palestinians in Gaza, the West Bank, and Israel, Asylum, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. So, in Gaza at the moment, more than 150 UNRWA staff have been providing desperate needed humanitarian support for those who have been killed since the start of the war between Israel and Hamas in October. So, yes, at the moment, the funds have been. F- froze and it's a it's a, almost a double of a shortfall and yep Zelensky has put figures on Ukrainian soldiers which is killed uh killed for the first time at 31,000 people the Ukrainian president has also conceded that western weaponry and is in short supply at a crucial time in this war that's still ongoing with Russia so since so for the first time there's been a figure acknowledging that's been put out that says that there's thirty one thousand soldiers that have been killed since and saying twenty twenty four will be decisive for the outcome of the conflict. Now he was speaking on this a day after the two year anniversary of the of Vladimir Putin's invasion. The Ukrainian president says he believes the country will be win despite the recent military setbacks. He conceded that the Western weapons were in short supply and were crucial at a time when his troops were spectacularly outgunned. They are currently running low on ammunition 
ammunition and at one point late last year were firing one shell for every 12 unleashed by the Russians, according to Zelensky. The ratio was now 1 to 7 and he admitted that they have great superiority. However, he has refused to say how many Ukrainian services personnel have been wounded, saying such details might help Moscow, but the Western estimates of the number of Ukrainian dead were too high. U.S. officials have suggested 70,000 soldiers were killed and 120,000 people were wounded. Now that's all I got, got for you for headlines this morning. Now we're going to take a listen to Jen Bartlett of Tuesday Home Time where they spoke to Ken Davis, the International Project Officer Union Aid Abroad, APHEDA, about the partnership between EPIDA and Palestine and aid provision for Gaza, West Bank and Lebanon. Let's take a listen. The Union Native Broader Feeder helped the Palestinian organisation establish itself in 1989 in Jerusalem and the West Bank and then Gaza called Mahan Development Centre. So it's a national, independent, politically non-aligned, secular, uh, progressive organisation that you know, works in particular areas like farming and permaculture, uh, women's rights, vocational training, uh, youth leadership, disability, and so on. We had big funding from the Australian government from 2009 to 2021 for agriculture projects with Marne and other partners in West Bank, in the northern part of the West Bank and in Gaza, particularly in the southern part of Gaza. It's been a strategic partnership for us. And then Marne, of course, receives funding from other international funders. I'd imagine that the only way you can get in touch with them now is in the West Bank? Yes, in general. You know, we can have all forms of electronic communication, you know, with uh, Marne staff and leadership in the West Bank. Some of the Marne managers from Gaza, by chance, were in on the 7th of October and 8th of October were in uh, Cairo in Egypt for training and haven't been able to re-enter Gaza. You know, some of their families have been able to come out and join them. So we can usually talk to them, but uh, Man in West Bank and Jerusalem is able to maintain some contact with, the, you know, their staff members. They've got run 230 staff members in Gaza. Most of the staff uh, have lost their homes. A couple of the staff have died and, you know, most staff have lost family members. Many of the staff have had to evacuate from the north, from Gaza City to Rafa or Khan Yunus in the south. But they're able to work in teams uh, coordinated by United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs at a local level. The communications, uh, you know, even prior to October 7, um, you know, Israel has total control of Gaza in the sense that Gaza Strip, in the sense that they can turn off the electromagnetic, electromagnetic grid at any time. A long while ago, they stopped uh, activities in the port and in the airport. Even the border with Egypt is partly controlled by Israel. The people's uh, IDs are Israeli issued in Gaza, and so Egypt needs approval from Israel for people to exit. A lot of goods are not allowed. But even prior to the war, if something comes from Israel, you know, people in Gaza need to pay sales tax to Israel for everything they buy. And it's Israeli currency. Israel controls all exit and entry and um, airspace and the sea. So, you know, people say it wasn't occupied, but 
it's occupied in the sense that Israel maintains control over everything, including water and uh, fuel and electricity. So the situation lately has been much worse, obviously, not just the level of destruction, but the interruption to being able to speak on phones or Wi-Fi has been very constrained. Just the fact, Ken, that over 100 journalists have been killed in Gaza since October. Mm. 117. I don't know what it must be like to be a journalist in Gaza. Well, (laughs) obviously pretty tough. I think Palestinian journalists have had a tough time, you know, for a long while from Israel. Um, You know, the Christian American uh, Palestinian journalist, uh, Shireen Abu Akhla was killed. There's a big history of Israel killing journalists, you know, anywhere in the occupied territories. But also, Palestinian Authority in Ramallah and the former de facto Palestinian Authority in Gaza are not in good environments for independent journalists either. And of course, in Gaza, international journalists are not there. So international media is reliant on local camera people and local journalists. But 117 of those have been killed, some of them fairly clearly targeted by Israel. 337 health workers killed. 45 civil defence workers, 153 United Nations staff. If people think that what's happening is illegal in international humanitarian war in terms of killing civilians, which you know I think it fairly obviously is, it's a separate crime to, to bomb United Nations facilities and to kill United Nations workers. Well, it's two months since I last spoke with you, Ken, and I can imagine you're being told stories that are far, far worse than what they were then. Yes, but the communications is is much less. Um, what's happened is the displacement of people is much greater. You know, the vast majority of the population are now out of the out of their homes. The majority of buildings, including housing, have been uh, damaged or destroyed. Um, the availability of water is less. There's still, you know, usually only around 100 or less trucks entering a day. Sometimes, you know, as low as um, you know 50 or so. Whereas in normal times, you know, prior to the war, Gaza's uh, imports would be around 50 trucks a day through both Israel and Egypt. So the aid situation is much worse. The displacement is much worse. I think only one third of the hospitals are partially operating. What was in the shops or what was in stores in terms of, you know, Gaza was a bit self-sufficient in vegetables and in poultry. Certainly rice and stuff was available. That's much, much less. The numbers of people facing um, famine is much greater. Has the or have the Israelis targeted the small farms that the Gazans used to live on? Yes, to some extent, but uh, but, but they always do. In in the sense that the farming areas were in the north, near the border in the north, and in villages near Khan Yunus in the south, and and on the coast in the south. So usually, when there's hostilities, the farms have got our open field or greenhouse and there's there's orchards in the sense of like date palms and a little bit of citrus and olives usually those farming areas are much more vulnerable particularly when there's a, a land incursion and you know that's been true in the Khan Yunus area really from the early days and it doesn't take a lot of damage you know from military activity to stop you know farm production and also people are reliant on water the coastal aquifer is dead so the water in the soil is generally incursion from the sea, so it's salty. 
plus there's agricultural runoff from the Israeli side. You know, more than 95% of the groundwater is unusable. People need to buy water from Israel, from Mekorot Company, or, you know, from Cell, particularly if there's um, small-scale solar-powered Cell. But you can't be having a crop of tomatoes if you don't have the water and if you don't have, um, you know, if, and if the greenhouse has been destroyed. Were the people able to have tanks on the top of their houses? In general, in Gaza, yes. And there was, um, you know, there were attempts a number of times to do, um, like, rooftop permaculture, uh, like in parts of Egypt. And people had solar. But the problem is, during any war, I mean, the war of this scale, obviously, completely devastating of all the built environment. But, you know, in 2008, 2012, 2014, uh, 2018, um, but 2014 in particular, like the level of destruction of water tanks or solar or rooftop gardens is pretty serious. There's a figure of 200,000 workers. I'm not sure where they are. I'm not sure where they come from. But who are these workers? Mainly the Palestinian citizens from the West Bank entering you know, across the wall or into settlements daily, uh, most with uh, permits, but day workers on casual, uh, mainly men working in construction or hospitality and some manufacturing. There was 10 to 20,000 at best people able to enter from Gaza. The workers that were in Israel that were from Gaza on October 7, many of them were detained and then deported to West Bank. So there's many hundreds of um, Gazan workers that are now in Jericho, you know, needing assistance and not able to go back to their families. But, but the impact on the Palestinian economy is great. In the West Bank, you've got public sector, you know, nurses and doctors and teachers and police with unreliable wages from the Palestinian Authority because Israel doesn't always do the tax transfers. And there's interruptions of like foreign exchange transfers by the international banks to Palestine. The other big sector is these 200,000 uh, cross-border workers, you know, because they're getting higher wa- day wages in Israel than they would get, you know, in the West Bank. And then you've got like NGO workers and a lot of the NGO funds have been frozen. And you've got a lot of Palestinian workers in private sector, but very small, like small, medium, family-run uh, like retail or um, hospitality or uh, farming. With the closures in the West Bank, because people can't move from their village to the city or from between cities in the West Bank, because a lot of the roads are technically area C and under Israeli control and Israel imposes lockdowns. Well, Israel has been imposing lockdowns, you know, extensively, you know, in the last period. And prior to that, there was a lot of Israeli military activity against uh, like Janine or Nablus or Hebron, and that's continuing. My friends in West Bank, and it's not corroborated, but you know, Man in the West Bank is saying around 12,000 Palestinians are in detention without charge. So the rate of arrests has gone right up. But what it means is the West Bank economy has collapsed and, and East Jerusalem because people can't move to get to work or people can't get adequate wages. And therefore, you know, people have got less money to pay in the local markets or less money to pay for goods from Israel with Israeli sales tax. So the local markets are still operating? In West Bank, yeah, and a little bit in Gaza still, yeah. But the problem is if you take the big income out of the labour force in the West Bank, then the ability of households to like pay for you know, for phone or electricity or water or food 
is massively decreased. Real economic shutdown in the West Bank and to some extent in Israel because um, around half a million Israelis have left, Israelis with Jewish nationality, I should say. A whole lot of parts of the Israeli economy have shut down. I think a lot of the guest workers, I don't know how many there were, maybe 500,000 have left. And some countries are uh, are saying they won't allow their citizens anymore to take contracts in Israel. And of course, a lot of people are serving in the, you know, reservists are serving in the military. So in particular areas of the Israeli economy too, you know, like the health sector, there's real problems. What's the role now for the PA? That's unknown. I think in general, I mean, what the Americans are saying, I mean, what governments say and what they really mean is obviously not always the same. I think the United States and other Western powers and to some extent the Arab regimes are saying that the Palestinian Authority must be, I don't know what you want to say, reconstructed to be able to manage West Bank and um, and Gaza. Say there's a ceasefire tomorrow. The question is who controls, who administers Gaza and who controls reconstruction and who funds it. Before the funding for reconstruction, say in 2014, was overwhelmingly borne by Qatar. But the level of destruction now is so great. At the moment, the question is emergency aid. But if the the bombing or the military invasion stops, it immediately goes into an immediate recovery period and then later a reconstruction period. So the question of who runs Gaza, and I guess a lot of the Western assumption is that some sort of reconstructed Palestinian authority does, but the, the credibility or the legitimacy of Abu Mazen and the political leadership in Ramallah is not good, I mean, with Palestinians. You know, in the West Bank, people are okay about the actual administration, about the ministries that actually do things. Like, people want their garbage collected, people want the teachers paid, people want the schools operating, people want the, you know, the hospitals operating. So the, the actual government, in the sense of the administration of each area of government life, people want that but they don't have any trust in the political leadership which is constructed to serve the security interests of Israel. The Palestinian security forces, which is about 37% of the Palestinian government budget, their purpose is never the security of Palestinians. Their purpose is only to defend the Palestinian leadership and and the Israelis. They never come in conflict with Israel's security forces. There's a real problem. I mean, it's a big question, what happens to the Palestinian Authority? The alternatives is that Israel directly administers Gaza, which, you know, obviously is not acceptable to Palestinians, but may not be acceptable globally. And morally and in international law, Israel as the occupying power has the responsibility for reconstruction and for the overall health and well-being and education of the population under occupation, which is clearly not happening. Is it all going to be back with United Nations Relief and Works, which is the agency for Palestinian refugees? The majority of people in Gaza are registered refugees, you know, from families from 1948. Does it fall to the international community, so-called, or the UN system, and who pays for that? Currently, Australia is paying around $40 million to United Nations agencies in relation to this emergency. What's probably important is what Egypt, the Egyptian government, the Saudi government and the Emirati government are saying at the moment is probably not what they really want. Israel is saying that the dynamic of negotiations between Saudi and Israel will be maintained. So the Saudis and Emiratis want some sort of new international structure that they control, which essentially takes away sovereignty from Palestine and to some extent from Jordan, you know, because Jordan has sovereignty over the holy sites in Jerusalem. 
a long objective of the Saudis is to replace United Nations Relief and Works with a Saudi-controlled charity for refugees and to be able to install governors or protectors for Palestinian enclaves, you know, that are indirectly under the control of Emirates or Saudi. So longer term, it's not clear what the governments of Egypt and um, Saudi Arabia and Emirates will want, but they're not really dedicated to Palestinian self-determination. And that was Jen Bartlett of Tuesday Home Time speaking to Ken Davis, who is the International Project Officer of the Union Aid Abroad, APHEDA, about the partnership between EPIDA and Palestine and aid provision for Gaza, West Bank and Lebanon. You're listening to 3CR AM. Stay tuned. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Way down the road 
I've been riding in blind passages, dead enders, kicking up cinders. I've been having some hard traveling load. I've been hitting some hard rock mining. I thought you know. I've been leaning on a pressure drill way down the road. Hammer flying, air hole sucking, six foot of mud and a show being a muckin'. I've been hitting some hard traveling load. You know, North Dakota to Kansas City, way down the road, cutting the wheat, stacking the hay, trying to make about a dollar a day. I've been having some hard traveling load. I've been working that Pittsburgh steel. I thought you know. I've been dumping that red hot slag, way down the road. I've been blasting, I've been firing, I've been pouring red hot iron. I've been laying in a hard rock jail. I thought you know. I've been laying out 90 days, way down the road. Well, the damn old judge said to me, "It's 90 days for vagrancy." I've been hitting some hard traveling law. I've been walking that Lincoln Highway. I thought you know. I've been hitting that 66, way down the road. Heavy load and a worried mind, looking for a woman that's hard to find. I've been hitting some hard traveling law. You're listening to Tricia at 5:5 a.m. and that was "Hot Traveling" by Bruce Hearn and the Machinists. Now I wrote I ex- I'm not sorry I wrote I read this really interesting article on the conversation which spoke about the art of getting lost and how it can be an antidote to capitalism. Now. This was written by Stephen Dobson, who is the dean of the School of Education and the Arts at Central Queensland University, and we're going to be discussing about what he wrote. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Nice to hear you. <laughs> nice to have you on our show this early this morning. Now, Stephen, this article was a very interesting concept that you explored. So, before we get into the whole the art of getting lost, what was And you obviously, this was inspired by what you have found from a French philosopher and filmmaker, Guy Debord. So, before we get into the whole details of your article, can we first get to know who was Guy Debord and what did he publicize the need for? Yeah, so this was this was a French guy, mm-hmm. and he had this idea. He said we're too obsessed with just observing things as spectators. And we're talking way back in the 50s and 60s, so this is a long time before we had all our digital devices and things. And his point was, well, maybe we've just got to learn to 
become more involved in our daily life. And that, that was his kind of starting point. Mm, I see. And then he he looked at the tendency, he said that uh, humans, us, we have a tendency to observe rather than engage. So what, and he was part of a group that was called the Situationist International, which really, uh, they dedicate to like looking at ways we could reflect and upon reflect upon and experience the city and hence that's a, one of the things that that they they focus on can you tell a bit of, tell, tell us a bit more of who they were yeah they so did. this was a, this was a group who there were a whole group of them across Europe and they were um, obsessed with this, this whole idea that we we consume everything rather than produce things and for them one of the key things was these a time when we have to imagine this was way, way before we could pick up our mobile phones and there would be adverts or you watch television or, or, or get different messages. So they were thinking to themselves, well, how could we make people more active? And they had all of these kind of ideas. One of them was, imagine you're walking down um, Federation Square in Melbourne. Mm. And then one of the things they call it, they call it psychogeography, which sounds this kind of strange concept but it's very simple it's forget about all of the um if you're going from a to b think about the emotions as you go through the square so they were saying if you follow your emotions in this kind of um unplanned way you'll imagine is it a welcoming square is there anything happening you think about your emotions all the time so they were trying to make people live more in the moment as they walked through space and you could take this idea that you could think walking anywhere so they tried to say let's take control over how we imagine our environment so it could be walking through buildings it could be walking um down a street or all of these ideas so it was in a way being more responsible for everything around you even if you don't own the buildings or you don't own the square just being more emotionally involved in it mm, that's very interesting and and one of the things you further looked into was, and uh, you discussed in your article, was understanding the situation, which was one of the things that the Situationist International Movement, they looked at. And this was bound with this whole idea of unitary urbanism. Can you explain a bit more what that term, uh, what that phrase meant? Yeah, it was, it was this, they, they had this idea. This is, again, these were people who were saying we're getting too many... Um, uh, too much pressure to consume all the time, to buy things, to all the time we've been told what to do. So they thought they were inspired by a lot of artists. And so some of the people who belonged to this group, they were into music, they were into art, they were into writing and all of these things. And I'm always, the reason I got into all of this was I remembered when uh, my grandfather passed, he left me a biscuit tin full of black and white photographs and they were of um, buildings in London and I became obsessed with my son who was about 12 years old at the time of trying to find out where he had been sometime in the 60s where he took these particular photographs and for me that was a chance of engaging with art this time it was photographs and I went around them with my son forever trying to find out where he had been standing when he took those photographs. And there were, there were no names on 
some of the streets or anything. You have to go and wander. And that would be a good example of this um, combining an art form, photography, with trying to find out where you were and things. That comes to that topic of when you get lost, you find things. Mm. And then when it also comes to then the idea of getting lost and people get so into what they have just been discovered, they also obviously don't want to share what shared about what they have experienced and enjoyed on social media. And then you so then you looked at this practice of geotagging images in social media. Is this another good way of helping us to actively seek out new places? Exactly. That's right. So, I mean, if you think we're all, we're all wander around and the moment you see a helicopter, you get your phone out and you take a picture. And that picture actually shows exactly not just the helicopter you just saw fly through the sky, but also where you were in geography, you know, like your place, your time, you could have been standing um, by a station or whatever. And the point of geotagging, it's not necessarily to make you more dependent on the, the machine, but it actually could take you to a place where you put your machine down for a moment and look at the helicopter. So there's a kind of a, um, an ambiguity that it, you're dependent on your machine for geotagging, but it's when you get to that place, mm. you observe it, you experience it. So that's something, if you go back maybe only 10 years, people were having cameras that could suddenly stamp the place where you are and the time and things. But now, of course, we can do it all the time. So geotagging is a great idea for making you get more into a space and sharing it, of course. Mm, that's very interesting. And uh, coming back into like the whole urban art installations that you were talking about, is there any examples of what can help allow us to rethink of everyday conceptions and give us an idea of getting lost in the city? That's right. So, so one of the the uh, installations is one in Sydney that we uh, that I talk about, and it's a, a famous artwork. And what the guy did was in a street between two big buildings, he had these open bird cages. And what would happen is you'd walk underneath these bird cages and there was lots of them high up, 50, oh, 20 meters up. And they would play the sound of birds that were extinct in Sydney, which had been there in the last 100 years. Mm. And as the sunset came, or still comes, as you walk through this corridor, with these uh, open corridor between two buildings, you can hear this, the bird sounds change. So you go from birds in the daytime to birds at night. So that would be an example. You're walking through the street and you come to this installation of artwork and you hear all these lovely bird sounds. And that kind of makes you think about A, what's these boss, but also B, maybe just them. That's it looks from what I can see from the picture that you put on the article. I haven't actually seen this myself, but it's very beautiful. It's a very beautiful exhibition and installation put out there. So I would love to visit that and hopefully see it one day. And so as I'm trying to understand this whole concept of getting lost in the city and it's it's very interesting with how you've put it and explained it. And I was but I was also just questioning and this was one thing that popped out in my mind as I was thinking about this concept. So we know that this idea of getting lost in the city is f basically more suitable and beneficial for people who are already in the city. But then isn't traveling 
feeding into capitalism because there's a whole you have to pay for the flight you have to go there and and whether is it and no matter how, we're not sure how much the budget's going to be but it's the whole idea of like having to pay a lot of money for it so wouldn't this mean that getting lost in a city only applies for where you live well, well, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, you can have a version of this where you actually spend money and travel. I don't know, let's say, to uh, Uluru in the central part of Australia. Mm. But I suppose the point they were making was that it gives you a chance to actually find things yourself. Mm. And it's often the case, if you think about it now, when we're trying to uh, move around, we immediately go onto our mobile phone and we find the map and it tells us how to go and you turn left, you turn right and a voice tells you as well what they were basically saying was that's taking you, taken away from that enjoyment of suddenly aha, I found this square Federation Square or whatever it might be so you're right in the sense it costs money to go from A to B to experience things but for them it was more about in your daily lives sometimes we become so concern from getting A to B. We forget about experiencing it. Um, and it's the example. You know, we, we become more obsessed with the map in front of us than actually putting the map down and looking. And that's to say it's that point of looking and suddenly something you didn't expect happens. Mm, that's very interesting. And so unfortunately, we're going to be running out of time soon, Stefan, but I just want to have one last question for you. Do you think in this time of society... Is it possible for us to really just set down our phones and just look into the city, especially because it's obviously way more convenient to be able to explore and find places that we want to exp- go go to. And uh, honestly, for times for me, it's impossible without my phone to look at places and be convinced that I want to go there. So what's, what's your opinion and take on that? Yeah, so I have this lovely vision. And I, I ask people sometimes, I say, tell me, do you remember as a kid the first time you went to the city. And I mean, you could live in the city, but that could be the central part of the city. And it's always that point. We all go back and we think, oh, I remember that time. And maybe I went to the cinema or maybe I was walking with my my uncle or my aunt. And it's those experiences. So we all have them. And they don't cost a lot of money, but they were important experiences to engage with. Just as I was trying to re-engage with my grandfather at that time taking black and white photographs which was certainly something more people could do so i think we all have it in us and we've all had those experiences which are important to kind of um share with the next generation and our friends and relatives Mm, awesome thank you so much Stefan. it's been lovely having you on our show i've enjoyed it thank you very much thank you have a good day And that was Stefan Dobson, the Dean of the School of Education and the Arts at Central Queensland University, where we discussed his recent article on the conversation discussing about the art of getting lost and how it can be an antidote to capitalism. Now, this was very interesting. I always love the idea of getting lost in the city because I feel like it makes me feel very into what I've been exploring and I feel like you know when it comes to being in a moment it's really all about taking it in and I think a lot of us out there as well as to our to our listeners you definitely want to experience what you have came all the way 
for, like whether is it a concert or whether is it a mountain or a nature forest park that you have been to, it's all about taking it in and ex- appreciating what we can see and what we have the privilege to have to have to enjoy. And so I think take step away from your phone and look into the world, look at what you can actually see. And I think what you can see, what you can hear, what you can do and honestly live in the moment. And I think this concept honestly should continue to live on. And I hopefully we all, everyone around the world gets to hopefully experience all this one day and and always because it's just such a beautiful thing. So yes, you if you want li- if you want to read more about the article and understand the concept more, you can head to the conversation and just search for the art of getting lost. How re- rediscovering your city can be an antidote to capitalism. You are listening to Three CR on eight five five AM. Stay tuned. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to threecr.org.au and get in touch. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference, happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit wildlife emergency response service dedicated to helping wildlife in need across Victoria. Our volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned wildlife. If you see wildlife that may need our help, on the road, in your backyard or in the bush, please contact us immediately on 84007300. That's 84007300. To donate or to become a volunteer, visit wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter.
to 16 Everything looked different when I was a kid I used to go there on the bus Eat cheeseburgers, my friend Didier and I Watching all the cars go by Recognize the library at all Retro futuristic architecture Big glass walls But the same faces When they're among the eyes And older now A little further down the line I used to work there was a teenager stacking shelves, watching girls read and listening to my tape player. I wrote a story once about it being blown up by a terrorist sometime after September 2001. And now I'm lost in Neeson's cardboard once again. I'm driving underground with goals to my old friends. Construction quarter after nine, they got CCTV and drive-through mall, but the clock tower's still standing, keeping time for us all. Now I don't see too many friends from Ringwood anymore. We drifted during high school, that's just the way it goes. But I still think about the Dead or alive, especially when I'm walking under Eastman's neon lights. And now I'm lost in Eastman's cover once again. I'm driving underground with ghosts of my old friends. was a beautiful country song from Eddie Nuoto called Lost Inside of Eastland. Now we're going to be looking back into a interview from Jen Barlett again of Tuesday Home Time speaking to activist David Burgess 
who, together with his friend, Will Sanders, who painted the Nerdwall in the Opera House sale in 2003. And we're just going to take a look at that conversation. Let's take a listen. Dave, an action such as the painting of the anti-war slogan on the sales of the Opera House didn't come from nowhere. I'd imagine it had a long and fruitful history. For me, it was when I was doing my HSC through the Technical College or TAFE system back in 1988 in New South Wales the big cuts that were made to the education budget by uh, Terry Metherall, the then Reiner government education minister. There was some massive protests and it really was the first time I'd sort of been, you know, I was always a bit politically aware through the my teenage years, but sort of coming from an area and, and family where protest was kind of frowned upon, it wasn't till then that I really understood the need to walk out with fellow students and and we were quite a a radical bunch at that place. We decided to go ahead of the rest of the state and do our own a couple of days before the big protest and cops didn't like that so got fairly violent and that was really the first time I'd been involved in that interaction that showed a need to solidify and maintain solidarity and, and buckle down. And where'd it go from there? I was I was living out at Bathurst after that in the central west of New South Wales and, uh, you know, doing all the, the normal things, but around a good crew of people again. And at the, at the time, there were big protests down on the New South Wales-Victorian border for the, the Eden wood chipping situation. So a, a bunch of us went down on a bus and I'd always grown up in the bush, but I'd never seen a clear-felling operation like the ones like you get on both sides of the border down there and also Tasmania. I was stunned. I I couldn't believe it. We all got back on the bus and went to Bathurst and two weeks later I was back there for the long haul. Did you achieve much with those demonstrations? I don't know. The the juggernaut of the education cuts and and the, the, you know, that real push for privatisation and the growing ever-growing number of private schools in New South Wales with the and the decline of the, the public education system continued. But certainly with the, the southeast forest protests were, were a grim initiation to, to forest protesting. I mean, you, you were coming off the back of, um, I guess, a decade of environmental successes and, and victories and the the ongoing growth of that movement through sort of in New South Wales you'd had the rainforest decision uh, in the early 80s and then I guess it, people had moved on to the Franklin and places like Roxby Downs so there was a growing uh, protest movement, direct action movement. We sort of came in on the tail end of the 80s and, and there was a determination on the part of the Liberal government of New South Wales then to outlast these protests. There was no end in sight. And by the time it was over, I'd spent a couple of years down there. There'd been over 2,000 or, or just under 2,000 arrests. Really nothing had been protected, or, or so we thought. But as, you know, a couple of changes of government later, 
little bits were added on to the park system. You know, it was by no means a, a thoroughly satisfying victory as such, but it did show that you could put something in the public's mind and, and a government might make good later. So there was grim times in the southeast and the length of time people spent in the forest and the slow decline in numbers, the violence of the timber industry all, you know, left quite a few of us with deep, deep scars over the thing, but also a, a bug to keep going, um, you know, some of us. I guess on that blockade, you, you sort of had, with a fair bit of tension, I guess, between the conservation movement and its organisations and, and the activists on the ground. As things didn't go as planned for the political strategy, that cohesion between the people in the cities and, and the ones who were going and seeing the politicians and those in the forest got less and less effective. To me, it, you know, I was quite happy in the bush and, and learning all of that stuff, but I also saw a need to, for at least some of us to be going in between the two and trying to maintain a decent strategy. So, yeah, even though I was, you know less than 20 or just 20, I think. I started doing that stuff. So, yeah, I still know many people who were I was with down there and, you know, whether they're involved or not, we all got very cold and we all got very muddy. <laughs> I'd imagine, though, you made some lifelong friends. Oh, yeah. In some ways, it was a forest process like no other, and certainly in New South Wales. You know, you could just the length of it, the fact it, slowly fizzled into a bit of a mess was really educating and, and bonding like we all knew um, what we'd been through so when we all drifted back to whatever we went on to do um, our eyes still spark up when we see each other. <laughs> and what did you go on to do? Did you stay in Australia or did you try having a go overseas? Oh, first I went back to school, went back to uni pretty battered and bruised and a little bit sick. So I went back to Newcastle and started studying communications and journalism there. I didn't know much about Newcastle. I knew I liked it. I'd, I'd been there a couple of times and had a had a good time and just liked the feeling of the place and the, the sort of crusty industrial nature. But realised, you know, I'd walked into an activist town, so it was it was a bit more upbeat in terms of, Active. It was changing drastically. We were we were going right towards the closure of BHP and so many people doing things there. Good people everywhere, really. So I, I went back to uni, um, but I was always keeping a, a pulse on what was going on in southeast New South Wales, and there was still activism around it. But I, I also started having a lot more contact with the people defending forests up the north coast and, and along the Great Divide there started getting involved with the, the North East Forest Alliance. That, that was sort of my first couple of years in Newcastle and often going back down to Sydney to catch up with people and started there getting, in, getting involved in human rights issues such as Bougainville, which happened quite randomly. I was literally walking through Redfern uh, close to a, a squat I used to have a place in and 
suddenly an old uh, friend from, from out of Bathurst actually leapt out of a pub door and said, hello, and sort of gave me a hug and said, we need you. And um, it was there I met a, a representative of the the Bougainville independence movement who needed a handwriting and media release, which I did, which I gave him. And by the time I'd written that media release, I was that pissed off about what he just described to me over a couple of beers and, and the writing of a, a press statement. And I said, look, if you need a hand, I'm I'm up for the long haul there too. And that actually took you to London, didn't it, with a demo out... A few outs- years later. Yeah, out, outside Rio Tinto's office. Well, yeah, we did a fair bit in Australia before that. We had a lot to do with pushing hard for a change of government and forest policy in New South Wales. Uh, leading into the 1995 state government elections. And, and that was when the Carr government came to power under what was almost the number one promise of protecting the old growth and high conservation value forests of New South Wales. I was coming towards the end of, end of my degree. Um, we'd sort of hit a point with the forest campaign where you could certainly not leave it um, as such, but certainly take a break. And I took the uh, advantage of um, my grandfather's 100th birthday to duck over England to celebrate that and then stay for a year because, of course, I had citizenship. And I'd been doing Bougainville stuff with the Bougainville Freedom Movement all that time. I'd set up a, a couple of groups in Newcastle and taken part in the, the campaigning of that national movement to... Um, push for Bougainville's independence and for you know for an end to the the war on Bougainville and Australia's involvement in that war I took that over to the UK and started giving several talks on what was going on um, you know it was Rio Tinto mine so we I was in the, the heart of the beast as far as the company was concerned and so few people had heard of it at all there's a bit of awareness around what was going on in, in East Timor, of course, but it was good to start up a, a movement which became a bigger movement and quite an important one, I think, in, in the Bougainville context that was active on it over there and in Europe. But, yeah, it did all culminate or begin with, with this uh, protest outside Rio's headquarters in London that sort of was all so quick it was over before it began, but it was quite... An effective little one, as it turned out, for getting things going. And that was Jen Bartlett of Tuesday Home Time speaking to activist David Burgess, who together with his friend Will Sanders, who painted the No War in the Opera House Seal in 2003. Now, if you want to listen more to Jen Bartlett from Tuesday Home Time, you can head to treesia.org.au and yeah, look up for look up Tuesday Home Time and you can listen to that. Now, we're going to be looking into a conversation that 
was done by Rob. Rob unfortunately is having a unwell day for for this week, so just if you wanna so you can come in uh tune in next week to hopefully catch more more Rob. But basically they did a conversation with next Benedict who was a sixteen year old non binary child who died died last week following a brutal transphobic assault in the halls of their own school. In the wake of their death, we as a community and a society must mourn for those lost to transphobic violence across the globe and reflect on how we can protect queer and trans youth to ensure they live full lives and become queer and trans elders. So late last week, Rob spoke with Anit Romdahl, a co-author of the review, titled Supporting the Health and Well-Being of Trans on Autistic School-Age Youth, a Systemic Literature Review. Annette Bromdell is an associate professor and at the University of Southern Queensland. Their research interest falls within the areas of bodies, gender and sexuality in the educational settings and healthcare services, specifically associated with cru- critical trans studies. So let's take a listen. About the first thing the review mentions is that um, research in this area by the studies that you reviewed is quite lacking. And I just wondered if you could elaborate on how lacking it is. Mm. Well, it is an emerging area of research. So of the 20 studies that we reviewed, most of them, so this is sitting in the 75%, um, were published in the last five years. And uh, so that showcase that it's a really emerging area um, and that it also um, acknowledges that um, autism is overrepresented in trans and gender diverse population. But what's really lacking is understanding the support in at the nexus of um, identifying as trans or gender diverse non-binary and then also uh, um, autistic or neurodiverse and thinking about the support um, school-age young people actually need. Um, Mm. So that support, and not only support that is coming from schools, but that are coming from clinicians and then appreciating how schools and clinicians and the broader community as well need to actually work together because it is a, a quite complex space when we think about intersectionality and uh, multiply marginalized communities and especially young people too. Um, so that's that's the area that um, we explored and we would have probably found more studies if we didn't have um the uh, exclusion criteria of it having to be in English. So I'm sure mm. there would have probably been more studies, but um, considering who we were as researchers, we would not have been able to command a, a study in, let's say, Vietnamese or in, in Thai. So therefore, the number of studies were 20 that we reviewed. Yeah. And... Um, And I guess another thing that was really coming across clearly through these studies is there's not a lot on the voices of young people themselves Mm -hmm. around what their needs are, um, 
there's quite often in the research that we found there were quite often um uh, uh, research talking about challenges and obviously you can translate that then to needs mm. but there needs to be more understanding of what is actually needed by first hand by the individuals themselves yeah by parents and guardians mm. who are often that protective factor and supportive factor and then also um, school personnel. Most of the studies that we found were actually around clinicians and what's happening in the clinical space linked right. to young people. So what we need more is an understanding of what are schools doing um, yeah. and what are schools actually doing well so that we can have mm. best practice models but more research is definitely needed in just understanding what are the needs of young people who are trans autistic, um, as well as um, what are actually schools doing. Mm. So interviewing schools, school leaders, guidance officers who are often the ones uh, meeting with these young people as well and appreciating uh, the challenges from a support perspective. How can Engaging we foster that? change yeah. for more like a support onus and a needs-based onus yeah. and actually speaking to mm. parents, teachers and people themselves. Mm. About usually support. research, yeah, usually research is uh, focused and driven by a problem. So yep. once you know that you have a problem and in this area, it is a significant problem. And, and I'll yep. just, for the sake of your listeners, research is suggesting um, that trans youth are more likely to be uh, facing bullying during their school experience with figures indicating, you know, sitting in the 80% of mm. trans youth having experienced transphobia at school. It can be um, at university too or TAFE. And these experiences, of course, are putting this group of individuals at greater risk of um, mental health concerns, but also yeah. thinking about other behaviours that are a risk to themselves and others, self-harming, mm. suicidal thoughts, suicide attempts, um, diagnosis of depression, anxiety, than those who have not experienced transphobia. Then let's add also the layer of neurodiverse autistic youth who also at increased risk of bullying mm. during their educational journey with some um, research indicating closer to 94% of autistic people having experienced some form of bullying during their schooling. Wow. So we know there's a problem, yeah? Mm. So starting with the problem, we know we need to have some kind of solution. We need to look at this from a perspective of finding ways to reduce these numbers, mitigate these harms. Um, so then more research needs to be done but that's not the only thing. You know, schools need to also be thinking about, okay, we have the data. We have data from, even though they may not merge the data, there's mm. enough research only on trans youth experiences in schools and on neurodiverse experiences. Obviously, when we add them together, we have a much greater proportion of vulnerability. Yep. So what schools need to think about is becoming uh, educated about what's actually going on in research, be future focused minded about what do they need to do uh, in their school setting. So it, it yep. means about training, obviously, their staff um, in needs. Um, I mean, we can think about from a whole school setting approach of supporting trans and gender diverse students, 
yeah. as well as um, autistic students. And, and what that means is they need to think about structural and systemic issues. Yeah. So anything from what's actually the school philosophy and ethos, what what is linked to policies and procedures and guidelines, and that could be anything from navigating um, gender-affirming bathrooms, facilities, mm. sporting teams, physical education programs, uh, uniform policies, thinking about school camps, Yep. Then leadership, what's the leadership doing in the school with regards to being gender affirming and and um, neurodiverse affirming? Yep. We can think about record keeping, uh, being mindful of privacy and confidentiality, uh, but also thinking about then, you know, identity cards that students need to have uh, that affirm them, library cards and so forth. Mm. But a really important thing is around resources and training. Um for staff at all levels. So whoever enters the school, working within the school system, and that includes volunteers as well, mm. need to be up to date. And that often comes with the, the leadership of the school. So what ethos and philosophy are they coming with? Yep. And then the school in itself, what support do they have for the larger school community, such as working with families and larger community organisations? So I'm thinking, for example, you're in Melbourne, your listeners are going to be in Melbourne, um, minus 18, for example, they deliver workshops um, yep. for schools. Um, yep. We can think about in the past, Safe Schools Coalition did training. So it's also really important that schools are up to date with the needs from the community. Mm. Uh, what goes into the curriculum? Uh, so what's the learning and teaching content? to yeah. ensure it's up to date and acknowledges the student cohort that students can feel themselves validated and heard and seen in the classroom. Mm. And then you, I can go on and talk about yeah. celebratory days and initiatives. Yeah, of so course. So Idaho Bit Day, we can talk about, you know, um, celebrating neurodiversity and yep. so forth. So I'm really bringing this in uh, to light from a holistic school uh, yeah, a whole of school approach where you schools really need to think about what they're doing from ground up to the level of systemic and structural policies yeah. and so forth. And of course, I guess we would see if, you know, the, the, uh, as you said, with like trans and gender diverse and autistic youth, like the overlap mm -hmm. of, of how both impacts children and the effects on their education and I guess their well, of course, their well-being throughout schooling also yeah. then plays out later on into adult life. And you know, if 100%. if if we look at st the statistics of how those uh, factors impact people in adult life, it's 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 such a huge thing. So I think implementing uh, that uh, within uh, schooling would have such a massive impact on not just you know. Uh, people like both of us who you know as queer people of course it would impact like wider society and community as well can i just speak to that because i think that's that's really crucial what you're mentioning there rob mm. like now and into the future mm. so if we think about the negative lifelong consequences it can have that starts at school and we spend so many years in school mm. and our um or or our lives around school are mm. so many, many years. 
and what you were talking about there linked to mental health and well-being but then thinking later on educational opportunities later on employment opportunities later on if one schooling experience has um, been hampered by harm distress um, depression and one actually doesn't want to engage in it and drops out what kind of employment opportunities does that have later on economic stress housing stress um, you know and we can even look at um, harm reduction with substance abuse as well, substance use and abuse, yep. and even further on thinking about how, um, you know, engaging with the law as well later on. So mm -hmm. it can have significant ramification that starts with a young life as a young person and the support one have um, or the lack of support and and the opportunities later on in life so i just yeah. wanted to highlight that because that is crucial Rob. yeah of course and that was part one of rob's interview with anna bromdell you're listening to tree cr am stay tuned Join the National Sustainability Festival in 2024 for a huge program of events this February and March. Featuring visiting economist Stephanie Kelton in conversation about her best-selling book, The Deficit Myth, uncovering modern monetary theory and the critical role of deficit spending. Serving as chief economist on the US Senate Budget Committee and as senior economic advisor to Bernie Sanders, Stephanie is flipping our understanding of the national debt and the nature of money upside down. For the full festival program and to book online, go to sustainabilityfestival.au. The National Sustainability Festival is a 3CR supporter. Brunswick Music Festival presents Sydney Road Street Party, Sunday, March the 3rd from 12pm. Over 90 artists performing on one massive day. Catch, Bench Press, Billiam and the Split Bills, Bumpy, Charlie Needs Braces, Chick Chicka, Merpire, Michael Beach, Al Carlson, Pauper Spit, Teether and Kuya Neal, Yorinda and heaps more. Plus, markets, community stalls and parties happening all along Sydney Road. More info at brunswickmusicfestival.com.au Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM here on Breakfast with Grace. Now, late last week, for those who've missed what we've what we've aired on part one just now, Rob spoke with Annette Bromdahl, the co-author of the review titled Supporting the Health and Well-Being of Trans Autistic School Age Youth, a Systemic Literature Review. And Anna Brown is an associate professor at the University of Southern Queensland. Their research interest falls within the area of body, gender, and sexuality in educational settings and healthcare services, specifically associated with critical trans studies. Now we're going to take a listen to part two. So let's take a listen. Of course, I mean, the statistics for mental health for queer people. Mm -hmm they're pretty jarring, pretty jarring and pretty sad, like as a you know queer person 
and a trans person mm. like it's, mm. it's it's always every time I come across them it's it's horrible to read um so of course it it's is. very important to foster this sort of change from the ground up it, but of course we're already clear. like seeing seeing change in uh, research level you know like the mm. review does talk about the depathologization of gender mm. identity like the removal mm. of uh mm. of being transgender from the the, the dsm the diagnostic mm -hmm. and statistical manual of mental disorders and the international statistical classification of disease and related health problems okay. and you know as as you said the prevalence of the formal recognition of trans people has gone up like it's it's very easy to see people are i think more open about this kind of stuff now because of so much push for change um and of course it's it's super important to to keep fostering that um i Absolutely. just wanted wanted to ask one last question annette um just for can our I just add, yeah yeah go on can i just add one thing that you just talked about there too mm. that obviously it's also the trans legal and human rights protections that have come with you know, the last 10 years, many of them yeah. um, have also contributed to this. So it's both political and legal yeah. and medical all together that yeah. have led to people having language for describing who and how they feel and what they are and being yeah. able to affirm for that. Um, but then obviously we can think about how things are going backwards in some countries too. Mm. Uh, some states in the US, like in Tennessee, where teachers are not allowed to talk about this, they can be expelled, they can lose their job if they talk about trans topics, or if they even mm. introduce a non-binary um, bathroom. So there's these push and pulls. And yeah. without ad advocacy and social change movements, um, this, this topic, um, I guess, um, or as many individuals may not have um, come out, for lack of a better word, um, as well, and 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 being comfortable with who they are, because there is such a strong advocacy and social movement, yeah. um, despite these um, more conservative push and pulls in mm. other parts of the world, and including mm. death sentence for some. Yeah, yeah, mm. horrifying, horrifying. Um, I just wanted to end with just a question more for our listeners, um, specifically mm. any like parents or teachers who may be mm. listening and maybe they have a, an autistic, trans or gender diverse person in their lives or uh, in their classrooms or, mm. you know, just around in their community. And maybe they're noticing that this young person needs a bit more support. What where can they go to to find it? So are you asking a parent or a teacher? Because it's yep. two different things. Let's start with parent and then we can go to the teacher. Yeah. Um, so thinking about parents, um, yeah. there's a lot of different trans support organisations across Australia mm. um, with the help, help of only googling it so if mm. one would write transgender support organization victoria 
um, you would um, quickly find one. And if you yeah. look for youth support organization, let's say in, in uh, Melbourne, you have minus 18. In Queensland, you have open doors and there would be plenty of different organizations that would mm. support parents and guardians in finding um, further support that is yeah. unique because it's becoming more and more um, mainstream, well understood that there is this nexus of trans autistic individuals and youth and yeah. the unique needs that they may have. These organizations are becoming better and better at supporting and these organizations also staff individuals who identify within mm. these uh, nexus within these uh, spaces. So they would be able to support as well. Yep. Um, there's also plenty of um, open and closed Facebook groups um, that um, I'm thinking one, for example, in, in Queensland, which is Queensland Transgender Network, mm. where allies and parents can become um, members of and seek peer support. Peer support is really important in, in this space. Um, yep. Learning for individuals who have lived but are maybe a little bit older now but can share experiences from the past mm. and where to go. Um, so I think there's a lot of support there, but it's just about getting in and doing a few searches. Yep. Um, uh, and um, As for teachers? It, and when it comes to teachers... There's often um, um, different organizations, and, and I'll say mine is 18 again, because yeah. there's organizations that actually provide training to schools where they can learn from people who identify themselves as well within the rainbow community and trans and who are also neurodiverse mm. about best practices. But there's also research out there. So yeah. um, important for teachers and um and um, leaders in the schools, guidance officers, and so forth, mm -hmm. actually engage in their own research. Um, it's really important um, in that whole school setting approach that I talked earlier about, that schools take accountability and responsibility of engaging in learning. Uh, that's one of the mottos even of teachers, that um, once you stop learning, you have no place in schools. Mm. So it's really important that educators, guidance officers and leaders such as principals and deputy are at the forefront of what is actually best practice research around mm. gender affirming schooling spaces and autistic affirming or neurodiverse affirming, but now also thinking about the nexus of both. Yep. Um, so, and obviously learn from their own students yeah have clear and open transparent conversation with your students what is it that they need what is it that is helpful for them individuals mm. are unique so uh, and i think that report teachers need to have with their students is is crucial and having um clear communication with the guidance officer is also yeah. important and i might add one more thing there rob is sure. that the the let's say that the the um, the young individual has been formally diagnosed with regards to both it'd be important for the teacher to have a good relationship also with the parents 
and work with clinicians. This is yeah. one thing that we talk about in our paper, that it's really important for clinicians and teachers to actually have a dialogue on, mm. on what's the best practice and, and best interest of the young person. And they can learn actually from each other to the clinicians and, and the educators. So oh. opening up the dialogue and not seeing them as two silos but obviously that requires a, a close relationship with um, mm. parents and guardians and allowing that um, relationship with the clinician and confidentiality, privacy. But if that's navigated uh, carefully, um, that would only be a further supportive factor for, for the young person. And that was Rob's interview with Annette Bromdahl, co-author of the review titled Supporting the Health and Well-Being of Trans-Autistic School-Age Youth, a Systemic Literature Review. The link to the review will be available in our show notes. Please read it, read it and reflect on how we can create a society in which young people like Next Benedict, a 16-year-old non-binary child who died last week following a brutal transphobic assault in their halls of their own school, in the halls of their own school, and so with, uh, in which young people like Next Benedict live to grow old. The review link will be put on our show notes, then. and that's all we've got for the show today. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in, and hope you continue listening next week as well it's been lovely having you uh having you to hopefully tune in and look forward to next week as well for me and for everyone and hope everyone has a great day you're listening on 3cr 855 am here on breakfast and this was grace 3cr breakfast would like to thank the new international bookshop melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program you can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.